welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin unraveling science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Professor Margaret Murnane, Distinguished Professor of Physics at the University of Colorado and Director of the Strobe Science and Technology Centre, is my guest on the podcast today. So Margaret is among the foremost active researchers in laser science and technology. Her work has earned her multiple awards, including the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship Award, the SFI St. Patrick's Day Medal, the Boyle Medal, and the 2021 Benjamin Franklin Medal in Physics. She's been elected to the US National Academy of Inventors and one of only two female physicists to be elected to the US National Academy of Science. So Margaret, with all that in mind, it's uh, such a pleasure to speak to you today. Um, especially representing Irish women in STEM abroad. And uh, welcome to Unraveling Science. Thank you so much, Megan. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here to chat with you today. Well, I suppose I want to go back a little bit and talk about, you know, what it was like growing up in Limerick um, and what were your interests when you were, I suppose, 10 or 11 and was it always science? You know, I, I decided I wanted to be a scientist uh, very early on. I think I was about seven or eight and I was very fortunate that uh, my father was a primary school teacher. And so he had access to um, just amazing books because it was all books by then, you know, back then it was before the internet and such. And, and he was also really good at motivating kids because he taught 46 year olds for 40 years. Wow. So you can imagine he had to know how to motivate kids because otherwise it would be total chaos in the classroom. And so for when I was very, very young, you know, three or four, when he would come home, he would, uh, um, I loved chocolate and potato crisps and Coca-Cola. And he would bring me, you know, one of those things every day if I solved a puzzle. <laughs> And so he would give me math puzzles or science puzzles. And, you know, this was amazing. He knew exactly how to motivate a kid because, you know, you connect science and math with something, you know, something you love. And, you know, it's it's something that, you know, you just develop a, a just a very strong motivation very early. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's kind of like a reward system. So if you if you had completed the puzzle, then you'd mm-hmm. you'd get your sweets. It's actually very clever. <laughs> it's very clever. And you know, one time I remember walking the, the streets of Limerick when I was maybe about nine or ten with my uh, father and um, somebody who probably was only about twenty two, but to me it looked like a very you know senior person, and came up to my dad and he and he said you know, a, a voicer because, you know, master, so he he was talking in mm-hmm. Irish and he said, I, I really have to thank you because before I was in your class, I didn't you know really know how much I loved learning and wow. you motivated me and, you know, now I'm in the bank and I've got a you know great job and, and I really love my work. And that really also made a big impression on me because I thought, oh my goodness, if you could sort of, you know, 
help others along their career and have fun doing science uh, along the way. It was just a really great thing because, you know, science can be portrayed as very fact-driven and cut and dry. And we all know that science is anything but that. We're always working on teams. Other people are always teaching each other. We're, you know, we're always helping each other, you know, find our way forward in science. And so I think that, you know, very early sort of, uh, you, you know, got me thinking about how science is done and sort of really changed how I might have done my career if I had been just thinking about, you know, facts and technology and made it much more sort of a people-oriented enterprise. And, and that is so much more fun. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that's such an important point that, you know, science is such a collaborative experience and it has to be that way I suppose to achieve mm -hmm. the results mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of a, a bit of a misconception maybe that we're Absolutely. kind of in our lab coats and we're, we're just solely working on one project but everyone mm -hmm. like you work in it as part of a team Absolutely and it's a bigger problem Megan you know for my area of science because you know physics can be very goal oriented you know are you going to build the biggest accelerator or telescope or the biggest laser or whatever and and of course that is not the point of science the the point of science is you know discovery and this teamwork and everybody work, you know builds on the work of others and so it really helped me you know find a nice area where you know you have, collaboration is key and you know move into new areas of science where you needed a collaborator because you actually didn't know the area so yeah no definitely and I suppose you know thinking about when you were maybe in going up to leave insert and did mm -hmm. was physics one of your subjects and and was that your favorite one it was my worst subject oh really <laughs> yeah, I I got a b got an a and everything else but <laughs> well and, now I don't know if you can say that was bad a b is, is pretty good I, I know, but, I, but it was it was one of those funny things that it took me a while to find the the intuition and and I that developed over time and in, in, in particular uh, it got better and better you know I I met my husband Henry in graduate school and I you know we taught each other a lot and if you can discuss something you're learning as you're discussing it and back in the day you know this was in the 70s and 80s you know the early 80s where I was in high school and college you, people were really encouraged to do the homework alone and such and so this idea of learning through discussion and um you know peer on peer men mentoring and learning just wasn't there and i and i don't and i think it's so much better to have you know discussions because we, everybody adds a new insight into problems Absolutely, yeah. And so you you then went on to UCC. Um, mm -hmm. And what was your what was your undergrad degree in there? Was it general? Science? It was physics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, physics. Okay. And then you know honors physics, and you know I it it was a tiny program at the time. You know, since then UCC has you know blossomed as many other universities, Trinity included, with all the fabulous research centers and such. But at the time. In my honors class, there was just one other student, and as luck would have it, she was a, a woman, uh, Breed O'Callaghan, and so we were the almost the only women in the program. Um, but of course, for us, it was you know normal to be working with the woman, and so that was a, a a very interesting experience. That our professors were amazing and inspirational, never made us feel 
always made us feel welcome, you know, never yeah. made us feel out of place. And, you know, we were both the first people in our families to go to college. And, you know, we didn't realize how unusual it was to have, you know, w women in physics. I, I should have sort of guessed a little bit, but th thank goodness I'm a little, I don't always take the hint at, at some point because because <laughs> my biology teacher in high school, when he heard that I was going to do physics at UCC, he said, you know, that's a pretty um, hard program. Maybe you want to reconsider. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. It's okay. I mean, it, it's good advice. You know, one should always sort of, uh, you know, see, is is this a good fit for me? And, you know, at what point did you think you were going to stay in academia and I suppose pursue a PhD? Um, and what was there a point where you thought maybe you would, you would go into industry, I suppose, just after, or was it always the academia route? Well, I didn't have a lot of connections to industry, you know, as, as an undergrad. Of course, it's very different now. Um, now there's industry collaborators at the Tyndall Institute and elsewhere. But the, the job prospects were not terrific back in the early 80s. Um, but the other issue, of course, is that, you know, my family, I mean, my mother and father are amazing, but, you know, they... I think there was one other person they had met with a PhD degree, uh, you know, in in the whole kind of local area, because, you know, this is, Limerick was not Dublin, and there, there really wasn't a college in Limerick at the time. So my classmates in the program and my professors had done PhDs abroad, and there was almost no possibility of doing a PhD in Ireland. So the decision was sort of uh, convolved with, you know, am I going to leave Ireland and of course you know if, you're, if nobody else in your family has ever had a college degree that's that's a tough sell yeah. <laughs> so I did a master's and that was a great decision on my part because it gave me time to kind of you know uh, see did I like um, uh, you know science and which I did and so and then I had time to think about where one of my classmates Stephen Fahey had gone to Berkeley the year before I was applying and he wrote back by snail mail because there was no email at the time and he said it's amazing here and he was using my Irish name Mairead it's amazing here you know uh, that th you'd love the science it it's a great place to live and by the way umbrellas work the real the rain falls <laughs> straight down <laughs> good selling yeah, point somebody there you know so that decision, you know, I had never left the country, and so it made it made it much easier to think about. Uh, he, Stephen was there with his wife Emer and uh, son, and so it was it was great to know people. Yeah, but it must have been such a huge move. I mean, to go from well Limerick, I suppose Cork as well, you know, to California, and yeah. I'm sure your parents were a bit worried at the time. They were, and you know, it was it was hard because they didn't even have a phone, you know. So so we we could you know chat in the on the weekends. They'd go to a neighbor's house. Of course, that's all different now. Now I talk every day to my mom by duo. <laughs> so, yeah, it's so much so much different. But you know, it was okay. There's a there was a very nice um, dorm for international students, and so there were people there from, and they're still my friends. You know, from the UK, from 
Brazil, from Germany, and U.S. students. And so that was a really great experience. And there were several Irish people there. So that made, so we made a home away from home. And, and I, I think in your first year at Berkeley, that's when you met your husband and I suppose long-term collaborator. It was the second year, he, because uh, Henry had, had gone to graduate school somewhere else and then moved. Uh, and so um, I met him on the, you know, August of, the, of my second year when he came to Berkeley. And I think, you know, because actually um, in the lab I'm in, my supervisor and her husband um, are collaborators as well. And I think it's actually such a lovely environment to be in. So Ursula is the research scientist um, and Doug is the uh, rheumatologist. And so it's it's such a brilliant collaboration. But and I think it's so wonderful because they are so passionate together and, and, you know, um, have achieved so much. So Mm -hmm. what has it been like for you working with your husband for all these years? Yeah, you know, the same, you know, when you think about it, Megan, there are so many examples of, you know, at least in the past, you know, farmers, shopkeepers, you know, artisans, you know, who, musicians, you know, who, who both partners would be pursuing something they love. And, you know, people are quite different. So uh, as I'm sure with Ursula and Doug, that, you know, Henry and I are very different personalities, but what it teaches you and I and I sort of needed it, you know, that it teaches you that you have to respect the other person. So it makes you a better collaborator because you yeah. have to. And over time, then you realize, oh, my goodness, he has a very good point And and somebody can read my paper. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, you know. So I suppose thinking about your your field of physics and, and lasers, what was your PhD in? And I suppose, why did you want to pursue that? I had always loved light. And I was very fortunate to have, there were some great experiments um, at UCC and we used lasers and did, and I really loved them. And then I was very fortunate that there was a new professor who had just moved to Berkeley and he needed to set up a lab. And so I ended up being his first student and Henry his second student. And that's an amazing environment to learn because you had to order the stuff, bring it in, design things, build them. And I realized that that's how I learn. I, I you know, I learn by doing things. Of course, you, you know, as you get, get more senior, you, you know, you, you don't have to do as much hands-on, but mm-hmm. it really uh, just gave me this intuitive feel. And, you know, I'm very bad with my hands in general. I'm not a good you know, painter or writer or, or chef, but somehow or other, I had this intuitive ability to align lasers really well. And who knew? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is why we have to do lots of different things. Isn't that right? We do. Yeah. And it just, I would, I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. And I ended up building them. I hated plumbing, but I would do it to build the lasers. (laughs) Wow. So, so I suppose, why lasers? Why are they important, um, you know, in, in our society? Well, it's very interesting story, Megan, that, you know, back when the first laser uh, was built, back, you know, it's, it's, it's over 60 years ago now, you know, Maiman and Shallow and, and Towns and a bunch of really amazing scientists made this ability to make this directed beam of light so that doesn't spread out like a light bulb, but, but is, you know, very directed but nobody had any idea what its use was going to be because they hadn't thought about it. And so there's this hilarious interview with um, Art Shallow, who's being interviewed by Walter Cronkite, who's a famous TV host, uh, you know, news host. And Art has a potato, 
in one hand and a battery powered very you know museum piece laser now and so he fired the laser at the potato and it very cleanly removed the skin they were just guessing they had no idea but the hilarious thing is I think Frito-Lays Frito now uses lasers to peel potatoes for their potato chips. But, you know, really? no, no, I know it's just because it, it removes this very, 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 you know, just the outer layer and keeps all the nutrients underneath. But, but you know, now you, you see lasers in LASIK, in uh, the Internet. Lasers are, are used to, you know, c convey all the information over fiber optics. They're used in uh, surgeries, in communications, uh, just, you know, loads of uses in science and microscopes. I mean, there are just so many different uses. Everybody uses a laser every day. And I suppose one of the kind of key developments from your lab and from your research is this tabletop x-ray laser and the fact that you were able to make them so small. Yeah, yeah, because we use x-rays every day too, you know, your doctor and your dentist and in security and all kinds of many, many applications. And, um, but most of the x-rays that are in use in your doctor's or dentist's office, um, they're like an x-ray light bulb. So, you know, it's amazing. If you actually look at the first x-ray picture ever taken by uh, Röntgen of his, wife, of his wife's hand, and it's not very crisp, but, you know, when your de dentist or doctor are looking at some of those images, they're also quite blurred. Essentially, they're taking pictures with an x-ray light bulb. So the size of the x-ray source or the filament is big so the image is not super crisp but with laser light beam of x-rays we can make a microscope where we can uh, the, the crispness or resolution is the same as the wavelength so it's really important for advanced microscopies yeah because I know um, you're the director of the, the strobe center and, mm -hmm. and the, the mm -hmm. tagline I suppose for that is building the microscopes of tomorrow which I think is lovely um, and, you know, microscopes are so important in every, in, in so many applications. Absolutely. You know, that's how we, we saw COVID. There, uh, you know, electron microscopes were needed to see the spike proteins and to image the vaccines. And so, yeah, all kinds of microscopes are just key. And with the Strobe Centre, what, what do you hope to achieve um, with that in the future? So one thing we want, that we have, you know, several thrusts because we have to do a lot of, you know, development of techniques and new microscopes. But one thing you can um, sort of think about is we don't have microscopes right now where I could put a little, you know, nano device, put it into the microscope and see it working. So if there's an internal flaw or if it's making too much heat in one area. So we'd love that kind of microscope. And similarly, we would love... A biological microscope where we could put a cell into the microscope and see the cell working. We don't mm -hmm. have microscopes that can do that right now. There's uh, we can freeze the cell or free freeze the biosystem, but that kills it. But we get a really, really, really good image. As we can't see the molecules yet, but it we're getting slowly there to where you could do that. But or as as you might be familiar with, we can put a fluorescent tag on the system. And that's wonderful, but it's a little bit like putting an anchor on your protein. And so it might change its function. So one thing, we're just starting a new project now where we'd like to make um, an x-ray microscope that works in vitro or the, where the biological system would be um, in water or such and could 
could, we could observe its natural function. That's a really hard task. We don't know how many years it's going to take us, but we're hoping we'll have results in two to three years. Because I know one of the other kind of key uh, areas of research is the, the development of this really fast laser beam. Yes, well, that's related that, you know, to make a movie, you need a strobos- stroboscopic illumination, just like when you freeze frame, you know, a tennis ball or a dancer, you need to have flashes of light. And lasers are amazing at doing that because Henry likes to say that you know, laser light is energy in its purest form. You can concentrate it to extremely small spatial regions, and you can also compress it to these short time scales that are faster than any other human-made event. It's it's quite amazing because uh, X-rays are very, very, very high-frequency light, far above ultraviolet, and so they have that, their wavelength is so short that when you add many, many waves together, they reinforce in space and time and you get this amazing ability to direct energy. Would the applications for that be, mm-hmm. you know, to maybe watch chemical reactions? Correct. And that's already been done and and also in progress because it's been done on relatively simple systems. And as we get better, you'd like to directly see that reaction um, happening and we're, we and other people around the world are doing that using both the tabletop sources that uh, you know we're developing and also some of the larger facility scale sources that are amazing but have limited access. So to, to sort of um, be able to really push some of these technologies and, and get to the you know, more energy efficient devices and such, one really needs a lot of different tools. Right. In your lab, I know you probably have many different types of microscopes and many different types of assays and, and such, but you need them all because exactly. every problem needs something slightly different. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so interested because, you know, this kind of area is so different to my own. Um, and I'm wondering, how do these experiments work or how do you develop a laser that can view things that are billion billionth of a second? Or, you know, how, how does that process work? And I'm sure it took many, many years. Well, you know, the hilarious thing is that sometimes, sometimes it's a... Was, there's a, a, a grad student and in fact one of the lasers that uh, actually we used and figured out how to really push to its limits the fundamental one of the fundamental discoveries was made by a grad student so uh, he, he was working with Wilson Sibbett in St. Andrews and uh, he had this beautiful it's called a titanium dope sapphire so it's the same material as ruby as in you know the ruby of our rings but ruby mm-hmm. Uh, it, but it's a it's a different dopant in the um, sapphire host, and so you get this beautiful, a little bit redder than ruby. He had a laser made of that, and he had a shutter in the laser to pulse the shutter on and off to get pulses. And one day he noticed the laser was pulsing, and he'd forgotten to plug in the shutter, so it was spontaneously pulsing. And so it turns out we figured out then how to make it pulse in these super short pulses and it it turns out there's um you know you could the the laser is able to induce a lens in the material and make all the waves add together if you add a lot of waves together coherently you get a, a, a beautiful stable short pulse and uh and then we pushed that technology learned how to amplify it learned how to make x-rays and then over time engineered the system so it so for a lot of the time we're just we were do, doing 
laser science, figuring out how does this laser work, how can we make it more powerful, then how do we make it the x-rays, how do we make the x-rays bright, how do we condition the beam so that when you turn it on the system works, you can direct it at a molecule or a nanosystem or a biological system and make a microscope, but you know that's 20 to 30 years, um, but it's worth it and it's the same trajectory as for example um, electron microscopes or MRI imaging. So the fundamental discovery underlying MRI imaging was made in 1934, I believe, or around then. And, and so it can take a long time to take a new observation and develop that into a useful technology. And lots of people have to be involved, you know, because no one person does it alone. Do you think, do you, is that a bit frustrating in a way that it can take a while for the application to become apparent in a way? I, you know, it's it's the it it's normal. The same happened with super resolution imaging. You know that that uh, Betzig and W. Warner sh shared the uh, I think it was the 2014 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. But but many technologies, some you know that that are important. You know, it is exactly the story that people look at it. Some of some people give up. Other people keep going. And because our needs for energy efficiency and wearable devices and nanotechnologies, everything is getting smaller. We want to use less power. That means that all kinds of, you know, nanoscale probing, you know, being able to see how things work, you know, is important. So it's a it's a nice topic to work on. What I love is it's a great um, opportunity for people in the group because they can either become a light scientist or an x-ray scientist or work with the national labs or work with material scientists are now biological or are collaborators in bio and so you can you can take it in many different directions and that's uh, that story has been there for lasers for quite a while that if the people who invent the new kind of uh, technologies don't work with the application experts it can get lost because yeah. the application experts don't understand so there's been a lot of that also in biomedical research you know where there'll be a new probe or a new fluorescent protein or such and then it takes a while for the communities to make best use of it so it's a great human story too I think as well as the technology yeah and I think that's so nice that you know your your team is collaborating with and communicating with so many different fields and areas oh and it's key yeah it's absolutely key you know one of our um, collaborators was working to image the the Moderna vaccine and it took a, a you know a, over a month to get the first image because you have to you know he's a biochemist but he has to deal with all the big data that comes out of um, a modern electron microscope where the image you know it's not like in our high school where you put put a something in the microscope and you see immediately yeah. that's that's not how any microscope works these days any a very advanced microscope works these days and you know something you touched on there was the kind of you know the wearable devices and how everything's getting smaller now. And I know recently your group discovered why or if you, if you pack devices closer together that they, they dissipate heat quicker. I don't know if I explained mm -hmm. that properly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Megan. So explain that, that story. Well, that was a, a, an accidental discovery. So we were, uh, we thought we were just validating a theory that we thought we understood, we and everybody else understood. Um, when our uh, graduate student, Kathy uh, Hogaboom-Pot, 
and uh, the postdoc working with her, Damiano Nardi, came and they said, we can't believe this data. You know, we put these nanowires on silicon and heat them up and they seem to cool faster if we pack them closer together. And that's kind of exactly the opposite from what we would think. Isn't that right? Our, our intuition that if you want yeah. to cool something, you would surround it by a lot of cold material and you would not put a lot of hot things close together and expect them to cool quickly. So we did a lot of experiments because we thought nobody's going to believe us. So they had data and they had direct beautiful data but the the material scientists when they went to conferences they said no nah, you can't you must be doing the experiment wrong <laughs> it can't be true and so so then t uh, two or three years later because they you know people knew what to look for they say oh we see this also because okay we had been the only group using we had, we, we were the only group using the x-ray lasers everybody else was using visible lasers because not many people have x-ray lasers that makes us very sensitive to tiny motions in a material. So we could see the effect very clearly. When the, the scientists using visible lasers went back and looked, they were able to see it too. So then they said, okay, we believe you, we see the effect, but you must be explaining it wrong. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, people started to say, you know, there might be something here. So we worked with two fabulous groups, one in aerospace engineering here at CU Boulder, and the other in Barcelona, and they had two different theories, one that could sort of look at somewhat larger uh, um, objects and one that really looked at every single atom. And they were, we were actually able to find out what, what, if what is going on in the material. It's that if you pack the hot lines, very, wires very close together, they uh, excite lattice vibrations in the cold substrate and those lattice vibrations um, can scatter off the adjacent hot regions. And, and what they say is that that uh, enhances this um, scattering and establishes a sort of a, a nice temperature distribution or so that you can actually drive heat more efficiently into the cold substrate. So we have a, a complete explanation for it that goes uh, from an atomic you know, vibration up to sort of more larger objects. And of course, this matters because, you know, the the clock speed at which um, our computers run are, are very much determined by how how quickly they can cool the transistors. So, so heat is a big issue, as you might know from our couple of years at home, doing mm -hmm. Zooms from home. <laughs> Often on a hot day, you know, the computer will say, oh, you know, running too hot, shut down applications. We are in contact with some folks at um, some of the semiconductor companies, you know, talking with them sort of and such. Yeah, and actually that, that leads me into kind of something I wanted to ask you, which is about, I suppose, commercialization of your research. And, you know, I know that um, yourself and, and Henry have about, you know, 17 or 18 patents and you've kind of this KM Labs um, company that you founded. What element does that bring to your research? And it's, it's nearly another another way of researching in a way, you know, and another skill that you need to have. Yep. yep. Well, you know, now we're, you know, you can't do it all alone. So the great thing is that when we put systems that are you know better engineered into the hands of non-experts it's a way for the research to go forward faster so it really helps because otherwise you know what we would build in a university lab would not be um, easily used by a non-expert 
So it really is very important when it's a new technology. But we also publish papers and we help other people to duplicate things. I mean, the company started by other scientists writing to us because the chemists knew they needed these fast bursts of light to look at chemical reactions, but there was no company they could buy it from. So Henry wrote up a little uh, manual for how to make the laser, um, and we used to mail it out to people all over the world. <laughs> yeah, really? They, they, they were desperate. They couldn't, the companies at the time didn't think anybody needed that fast a flash of light to look at things. But of course, the scientists knew they needed it. So it was, and then they begged Henry to start a company because some of them didn't have good instrument shops or chemists didn't necessarily want to build a laser. So that's how it started. It was the just a science-driven community need. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that's amazing. And, you know, I, I suppose because this podcaster wants to highlight, you know, Irish researchers working abroad, I'm just wondering, you know, as we you mentioned just before we came on air, that you were back in Ireland in July, um, and how I suppose hard has it been with COVID and not being able to to get home? And secondly, do you ever think you will return, or do you think you're you're set oh. in America now? So, so you know, science. I mean, the one thing I really love when I when I get home, of course, seeing the family, but also seeing the thriving science environment in Ireland. It you know, it makes me so proud. You know, the fabulous centers at all the different institutions, just seeing so much that is so different from the um, early 80s. And it's so wonderful that, you know, people can stay in Ireland, do a PhD, um, you know, drive the economy there. It is really just amazing. And of course, COVID was hard for everybody. One of my grad students, Sinead Ryan, her parents live in Scotland and she hasn't seen them. Um, you know, since the pandemic, but she's going to go home at Christmas. So she's looking forward to that. So it's been hard. So it's, it's been hard on everybody, but I'm just so grateful to have um, things like duo so I can see my mom and talk to her every day. And the same with my brother. And so uh, that has, has helped tremendously. And of course, being able to visit in July was amazing. And we were very fortunate that um, I had seen, the family in you know December of 2019 little did we think <laughs> I know I know yeah I suppose nobody thought I, I suppose Margaret another kind of question I want to ask you is you know what what do you love about what you do and, and I suppose what drives that passion for learning and research I, I think it's it's that you know the sense of surprise so we're not directly in the lab anymore but seeing the students just blossom and become these amazing scientists and then go on to just lots of different careers or or just learning I think you know being able to collaborate with world experts and still be able to ask them dumb dumb questions and have a laugh yeah. when we realized that we were we were all wrong you know and and just this I, the sense of discovery I, I just love it and thinking about you know you being a female physicist as you mentioned at the start of the conversation you know you were one of two in your class um you know in UCC um how do you think we can attract women to I suppose pursue careers in STEM but also to stay in careers in STEM yes 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 so one thing you know we try to do is first of all not have science be a race um, you know, you know that with just one goal, you know, because that is not what we need as a society. We 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 need to tackle serious problems like, you know, green energy and better medicines, clean water, all of these things that that is worthwhile doing. 
So having science address societal needs, stop pretending that scientists are any more um, kind of rational than the rest of them. <laughs> you know, so, so what we're doing, for example, is changing curricula, doing uh, social IQ training, mentor training, trying to bring, uh, you know, people to science and then can pick different pro problems and having more shared credit, all of these things, it's just more fun that way. And, and we, we, we'll all be happier. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I told Margaret, my, my last question for you is, if you weren't um, a physicist, if you weren't a researcher, mm -hmm. what career do you think you might have had or where do you think your life would have ended up? Probably a teacher. <laughs> well, I mean, in ways you've kind of fulfilled that role, I suppose, as a mentor and a supervisor. Exactly. You know, so we're all teaching ourselves and each other all the time. <laughs> so we're all teachers. There's absolutely no question about that. I wouldn't want to do science alone. I, there, I would leave science if, if I had to do it alone. Yeah, yeah. It's just, um, you know, the, I mean, that's one thing I think my, you know, coming from the Irish culture where people like other people, they, you know, we see other people not as competition, but as allies, you know, and that's just the nature of the, culture we were fortunate to live in a in a time where there were expanding opportunities right and so i think that you know has had a huge impact on my career because of this you know um always attracted towards centers or working with other people and just keeping up those relationships for decades and that's when you can do crazy things together because if you trust the other person you can take more risks <laughs> Yeah, no, I love that. Well, listen, it's been so lovely to talk to you, Margaret. Thank you so much for, for coming on to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And Megan, thank you for everything you do and for the opportunity to chat. I really appreciate it and I've enjoyed it so much. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. Big thanks again to our sponsor Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.